0: Our Aquinas 101 program has reached 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. Will you help us reach more souls? Support our mission by sending a gift at ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling, no spaces. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash keep the cameras rolling. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you, Father Gregory. I won't even attempt to... Reproduce my old friend Matt Levering's uh, response to an introduction. It takes me a long time to learn how to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Secunda secunde 28.8. It's on the order of charity. Thomas writes, We should measure the love of different persons according to different kinds of union." so that a man is more loved in matters touching that particular union in respect of which he is loved. And again, in comparing love to love, we should c- compare one union with another. And I sort of cashed this out. Is it on? It's on. Okay, good. Uh, uh, there are four questions for social ontology. Who belongs to whom? In high school, we were very much concerned about that. That was back when people dated, but anyway. (laughs) Second, what is the bond, which is the main question of this paper? For what end or ends, and what do the members owe to one another? Any competent investigation of social reality is, needs to ask these questions, either explicitly or, or implicitly. And I say, Thomas Aquinas is the common doctor of Catholic social teaching, but he's also the common doctor of social form, which concerns the bond immediately. So most of my paper is gonna be on the bond were different kinds of bond. John Paul II said in Centesimus that Leo XIII set out to analyze society. Uh, and of course, by the time of John Paul II, Thomas's social thought had already been revived twice. First, during the Baroque era on law, church and state, but especially and brilliantly on the social facts of the new world. Dominicans might have been the best, but Jesuits were pretty good on that one too. He was certainly the common doctor of the 16th century on social investigation of peoples and societies. But then of course uh, his Uh, teachings were revived once again by Leo at the end of the 19th century. In the same spirit, I think, of those Jesuit and Dominican missionaries in the new world and all over the world, Leo once said, nothing is more useful than to look upon the world as it really is. And Leo and his successors I would say Pius XI and Pius XII certainly wanted to understand the ordinary, concrete, social, and historical world, and I think they were fairly—they base- they were pretty faithful to the basic principles of Thomas's social ontology, even as they reckoned with new facts on the ground. And for Leo the Thirteenth. The new things, the Rerum Novarum, are almost entirely social. He considered the social phenomena of his time, tried to sort them out. This includes political parties, revolutions, international markets. By the time Leo was pope, every continent on earth had been penetrated to its interior by railroads and transnational companies. Actually, economies of scale keyed to culture and to region were disappearing. Banks, what were banks? They weren't like they were in the Renaissance. Labor unions, a huge fact of his time, systems of mandatory education. And all of this in addition to what we would call in the Thomistic tradition, the three necessary societies marriage and domestic order, polity, and church. But doing these investigations, we have to recognize at the outset that this sort of work, as important as it is, stands near the bottom of a properly Thomistic hierarchy of sciences. To do social thought in a Thomistic vein is to be like a catfish at the bottom of the pond. For one thing, societies lack substantial unity. Rather, they are unities of order standing between things having substantial unity on the one hand and aggregational unities on the other. Of course, societies are composed of individuals having they have substantial unity, but no society has a substantial unity except perhaps for the divine trinity, but don't try that one at home. I mean, that's a different kind of a category that I'll let the theologians deal with here. It's a bottom feeder for another thing, because although John Paul II is the first pope to sort of formally declare that Catholic social teaching falls under moral theology, uh, It is inferior to moral theology in the hierarchy of sciences. By the way, I think John Paul II in three different encyclicals beginning with Solicitudo declares it's under moral theology because of the challenge of liberation theology. The challenge of social teaching and social analysis simply being inductive and imminent without any principles higher than itself. I think he was also bothered by Chenu's book. There's a whole story behind this one that I'm not gonna go in, but uh, Chenu wrote the famous little book, uh, Catholic Social Teaching as Ideology, which called for a completely inductive approach to social reality I think that shook up Voitiva before he became pope. Anyway, it's under, first we have substance, and then it's under uh, moral uh, philosophy and theology. And let's say, according to the broad theme announced at the beginning of the Secunda Pars, made unto the image of God, the human person is, according to St. John Democene, an intelligent being endowed with free will and self-movement provident for himself and others. So uh, most of the secunda pars is on morals. Third reason, putting marriage to one side because marriage has a fixed matter, one man and one woman, It has a fixed form, the bond, which I'll talk about more later, and it has fixed ends. But other social orders, polity, for example, and arbitrary societies have diverse forms of common action and diverse requirements of what the materiality will be. A polity is a polity polity whether there's five men and two women, or vice versa. So it's tricky business to do social uh, analysis. First, we have to look at real substances, human beings, who who are agents capable of acting. And we have to do moral philosophy and theology. But the basic uh, polarities have always been at work in Western uh, philosophy and political and social analysis on one extreme stands the platonic or let's say stoic conception of social unity as, called, as caused by a soul as sort of Plato in the republic it's rather stoic that is that the Social order is substantial. It has a soul animating it. Aristotle and Aquinas both go after that one. And today, what could be called methodological individualism, namely that social unities and relations among members can be reduced to non-social properties of members or composites thereof. Actually, this position has been around forever as well. I mean, it's Epicurean in its roots. In any case, societies are not substances. Even angelic beings, every one its own species, need a form of order, which we call choirs. Okay. So if we wish to understand social forms, formations, and in cases other than matrimony in the church, which I leave to one side, we have to look carefully before abstraction and be ready after abstraction to verify. And I take this to be what was reported about Aristotle, that he sent the students of the Lyceum to track down the variety of constitutions, Uh, apparently 158 of them. Before we abstract, let's get some evidence of what people mean by constitutions and political order. And abstraction and verification, last comment by way of introduction, also is difficult because the intensity of a social bond is not necessarily the best indicator of its dignity. For example, a parliament meets four times a year via representation of a social body. But a special forces military team lives and acts more intensely and continuously. I mean, if you want to find a social bond that's very intense, more intense than marriage in some respects, Navy SEALs. But it is not a way of life it is not a superior social form to a representative government in a parliament. I think military wives often have to go through the tough business when their husbands come, from, come home from special forces duties to say, you're back in the household now. Right. We're not a special forces team. Okay. Okay. Now, I wanna make a quick survey of some of the Thomistic categories, and probably you already know these things, but let me do a brief summary and get to some questions. Form of order designates a society from other kinds of humans' intersubjectivity. A crowd at a shopping mall or an audience at the opera, a crowd in, in, in the piazza, Exhibit intersubjectivity without pursuing a common end through united action. A fully social intersubjectivity can also be distinguished from that of partners. Partners pool their resources for the purpose of increasing profit. But such pooling does not necessarily require common action. I pool through my retirement account with millions of other teachers. There's virtually no common action. And it's for the sake of a private yield cashed out later. To be sure, any temporal society will institute common pools which render more secure certain kinds of uh, resources. It's social, business partners, and it has some intersubjectivity if they're working together, but they don't constitute a society in the complete sense of the term. A unity of order stands between substance, a man, a bird, or a plant, and a unity of mere aggregation, like a heap of sand, or a queue waiting for the bus. In a social unity of order, a marriage, family, church, polity, each individual retains his own identity, and operations, yet the social whole is more than the sum of its parts. Uh, I think the mirror marker of this, in terms of set theory, holes and parts, the line waiting for a queue is a transitive set, which means if one person drops out of the set, out of the line, it's a different set. Add one person to the line, It's a different set. But in France, three births in one day or five deaths in one day do not change the set. France, that unity. Or in the family, subtract or add, the family is still the family. Or in the church, they're non-transitive sets. You might ask about marriage, but what marriage is, the death of a spouse marks the demise of the intransitive set, not a change to a new one. Okay, that's why Yves Simone once said that uh, social unities of order are potentially immortal. They can keep on ticking. They don't always. But there's nothing in because it's not a substance that requires them to ever be over. They don't have to die. So this set, this intransitive set, counts as a subject or a person in its own right. Lawyers and philosophers have called this kind of entity a moral person or a legal person or even a mystical body. Uh, John Paul II calls them interpersonal Subjectivities. These and other terms designate the unity of members in a non substantial body, and such a body not only has a common end or ends, but also an intrinsic common good. Thomas calls it a communicatio in forma, a shared form that marks its distinctive kind of union. And in this case, the form is nothing other than the form of common action. It has both an intrinsic common good and an extrinsic common good. What what we have to pay attention to is the intrinsic common good, the form. And the form is always indivisible. You either participate it or you don't have it at all. Uh, i like to give the example, even in our corrupt legal order, if a married couple goes to the magistrate uh, petitioning for a divorce, the judge knows perfectly well that he can divide the property. Uh, The husband gets the television and the changer. The wife gets the dining room table. You can divide those things. You can divide retirement accounts. But the judge also knows that you cannot send one party away with 35% of the marriage. It's ontologically impossible to divide the marriage. It either doesn't exist at all, or if it exists, it has an indivisible uh, intrinsic union to it. Now, these terms substance relation and habit, drawn from Thomas Aquinas, reworked from Aristotle's categories, are very important to understand his mind on this because accidents are not unimportant. If social orders are unity of order rather than unity of substance, all the work here is being done at the level of accidents. Well, here I quote Thomas in De Veritate 21.5. From the point of view of its substantial goodness, a thing is said to be good in a certain sense, but from that of its accidental goodness, it is said to be good without qualification. A thing is called a being inasmuch as it is considered absolutely, but good as it has been made clear in relation to other things. Now, it is by its essential principles that a thing is considered in itself so that it subsists. But it is not so perfectly constituted as to stand as it should in relation to everything outside itself except by means of accidents added to the essence. And because the operations by which one thing is in some sense joined to another proceed from the essence through powers distinct from it, consequently nothing achieves goodness, absolutely, unless it is complete in both its essential and accidental principles. Now, in the case of a human being, uh, the human being, of course, has a substantial unity, body and soul, but accidents are required. All the virtues, both theological and moral, are accidents. And it is also an accident to be related to another person, at least in a social union. Unlike the relation of body to the soul, in which the body has no choice in the matter (laughs) at all. It's a despotic relationship. And it's unlike children, who are under a quasi-despotic regime in the household, at least during their tuition. But marriage, polity, and church are not despotical. In fact, if they turn out to be despotical, we might need to step back to wonder whether their respective social forms and ends are being accomplished. So as to the bond, the bond is the key. Not in the absence of the matter, uh, not in the absence of the end, or the causes, efficient causes. But without the bond, we we simply cannot do social analysis. Uh, For example, a crew team, has to act together to participate in the race. Uh, They all have an end. They want to win. But presumably they want to win as a crew team. It's not just the extrinsic end, but it is the internal form by which they want to accomplish it. The victory belongs to the team doing common action. A married couple has as an end reproduction, procreation, but presumably they want to do it matrimonially. And here's what Thomas taught. Nor is the direct object of consent, this is in marriage, a husband but union with a husband on the part of the wife even as it is union with a wife on the part of the husband. Psychologically, of course, one desires and chooses this man or woman. But what makes marriage, marriage is the form which is a consent to the union. Uh, I'm thinking now of my condominium association, in which we consent to certain rules governing the condo. But I'm not consenting to a union. I don't even know 90% of them, right? I'm consenting to something else, but but not a union. And I think Thomas insists with his typical uh, brevity Reaches the heart of the question that's analogous to all modes of social order that are true societies. Quote, matrimony is not merely the joining of minds or bodies, but the joining together of bodies and minds is the result of matrimony. The consent is to the union. I don't know if you've had this experience. I used to only have it on the West Coast, but now it's everywhere. You go to someone's wedding, and it's time for the vows. And you get reports like this. Oh, I really loved Jed. When we were dating, he would take care of my dog when I was gone. He always has a smile on his face. You know, he's always there for me and reciprocated by other people expressions of joy and uh, admiration for the other person, but they never get around to a vow to the union. Maybe it's implicit, but I'm always waiting to see whether there's actually a vow or a consent to the union itself. Well, we'll leave this to the canonists. But, uh, and for Thomas, there's one more principle. And I've already mentioned it. Uh, intensity of union is not the only principle for picking out a society. Usually, political association is less intensive. This is, of course, Aristotle's argument against Plato in the Republic who said the best regime is the regime in which there's even common wives so that we are not distracted into too many different uh, factions and and associations. Uh, Usually, uh, however, as Aristotle points out and Thomas does as well, the perfection of political form is its range, it's it's a range of goods and a range of different actions by people at different ages with different specialties that brings about more perfection. It's not just intensity. If we were to try to translate the principle of intensity into political form, um, we almost certainly will get despotism. Because the relation within a family of the parents to the children is one of at least quasi-despotism, but it's intense. And in some ways, although the despotism should be relieved as time goes on with regard to the children, it, it forms the vehemence and closeness of family order. But the great lesson of political order is that if you try to do that, you're you're almost always gonna goof. Well, well, the Spartans were the great uh, uh, contradictory case in which in Sparta, the military union uh, was, was the state. Virtually, it was the state, and certainly superior to the family. And they made every effort to translate what could call interpersonal intensity in, into the military cast. And Rousseau loved it. He said, the problem is, if we try to do this, we will become man-haters. Because the, the rest of the range of goods will be obscured and destroyed by attempting that kind of an order. would say, The confusing of intersubjective intensity and relations in any given society with uh, its excellence is something like polycythemia. That is a red blood disorder, right? In which there's an increase in blood cells, particularly red blood cells, and the increase in blood cells makes your blood thicker but it leads to strokes, tissue, and organ damage. We don't want to confuse uh, these different kinds of societies. Finally, Leo follows Thomas, and Pius XI follows Leo. There are three necessary societies, and necessity has to be uh, accounted for in this way. The first kind of necessity is need. So, for instance, in marriage, they need each other to reproduce. And they, I guess they need to do it together, right? But it's not just the sexual intercourse being done together, they need to be a team. Or domestic order will become unlikely the entire domestic order. But that need, over time, becomes a different kind of necessity, which is that of excellence. They become really good at what they do. And eventually they grow wise. And I would say the same thing with polity. It begins in need. And as Aristotle discusses it, and Thomas follows him in the commentary on the politics, it begins in a very basic need. Once households evolve into what Aristotle calls the village, we have a pressing need for justice, because the only way to fix disputes is through your first and second cousins. Uh, That's the godfather, right? Where are you going to go if your second cousin is being mistreated by her husband? I know the guy. Right. You just go and whack him, beat him up. And it's something that's harmful to the domestic order. They need a wider order. In fact, villages are very dangerous places. Hillary Clinton was wrong on this, actually, I think. (laughs) Very, very dangerous places. You need more than a village, which is just an extension of domestic order. Uh, But eventually, as Aristotle says, to solve that problem leads to great excellences in political order. Common life, development of sciences, libraries, virtues having to do with the more complex common good. And even the church's order begins with necessity, which is the need for salvation. Forgiveness of sins, it's brutal. If, if you can't hear that message, you don't know what you're doing in the church. But many excellences follow. Okay. And Thomas says, even in heaven, quote, in the glory of heaven, two things will most delight good men, the enjoyment of the Godhead and the common society of the saints, for there is no joyful possession of good without society. Okay. Now, here's my transition, and I'll refer to the handout. Leo and subsequent popes were sometimes called labeled the great coherency because actually eight popes came to be around Leo. Of course, uh, Pius X was already a mature man, but a bishop under Leo. And uh, then uh, Benedict, who was also a bishop under Leo. And then we have Pius XI, who was Leo's student. And we have Pius XII, who was ordained uh, in Leo's, at the time of Annum Sacrum, at the very end of the 19th century. And then we have uh, John XXIII was a seminarian in Rome in the 1880s wrote a fan letter to Leo XIII saying, Rerum Novarum was pretty good. Um, And even Paul VI is born in the Leonine era, 1897. In fact, John Paul II is the first one born outside of the Leonine era. It was called the Great Coherency because I think they they had similar educations and a broad line of uh, experience Leo from 1810 to 1903 and so on and so forth. But this begins to change at the time of Pius XI. It's not the the fault of Pius XI. The scale and complexity of understanding social orders changes. Chiefly because of war, Leo was, one good thing for Leo's pontificate, he didn't have to deal with too many wars. There was the Franco Prussian War, which happened before he was elected Pope, but it was a fairly peaceful pontificate. But of course, uh, then we have World War I. We have uh, a long list of revolutions going on. And we have the breakdown of the global economy. Uh, and all of this was being grappled with, especially by P 11, in an atmosphere of emergency. And what emerges, what I would call, is a tendency to look upon social order as a kind of giganticism. Everything was big and had to be discussed in very large terms. And I want to show one example of how social form gets a bit confused and why it matters. So, on the handout. So, the backstory: story. During Leo's pontificate, just before Rerum Novarum, the Freiburg Union, which was a union of French, Italian, German, uh, Thomists, who would get together in the summer almost every year, and discuss uh, social issues. In fact, uh, Rerum Novarum was a result of that because after several meetings, the Freiburg Union was divided on the issue of whether the social problems in Europe had to be solved chiefly by charity or chiefly by justice. And they sent a note to Leo XIII, could you resolve this? And that's what led to Rerum Novarum in which Leo says, first, justice. We're, spoke, we're speaking about economic issues and all sorts of other ones at that point. So, um, then, emboldened, the Freiburg Union sent, I think, a telegram to Leo XIII wanting to change the name of general or legal justice. Their reason, they're dealing with Bismarck and they're dealing with European states that are happy to hear that the Catholic Church uh, believes in legal or general justice because that's just what they're up to. And especially the Germans, the German Catholics, worried that this caused a confusion, that the summit of justice, the greatest mode of justice, is confused with Bismarck's Kulturkampf or with Bismarck's laws, just obedience to law. And they petitioned him to rename it social justice. It was a softer term, also a more malleable term. And Leo, you you will not be surprised, said, heck no. We're not changing the name of this. And he had good reasons, which I'll show you in a minute. But uh, Pius XI, Leo's favorite student, gave in on this and gave in on it during the Depression. He perhaps had good reasons for it because how can you do general justice, which is what the parts owe to the whole, without treating a multitude of different things? More than just distribution or commutation. Um, but it was the wrong time to give in on the term because by mid 19th century, in the English speaking world to be sure, beginning with John Stuart Mill, uh, social justice meant distributive justice. And how can the church come along you know, 80, 70 years later and say, well, no, it means something else. Anyway, look, look on the, uh, the triangle. The, the, the vertices of the triangle below, by the way, I take that from Joseph Pieper's book and add a few things. This can be made more complicated if we want to, but let me just look at it simply for a moment. Of course, the, f- the ancient formula for justice, iusum quique tribuere, it involves three factors, that is, we need a giver, someone who is obligated. We need someone to whom it's obligated. It already belongs to him. And we need the thing, the res justum. Yeah, we need all three. And if we can't identify the three, the giver, the recipient, actually the owner, and the the objective right, we can't do justice. We may not do injustice, we just can't get justice done. If I find a $50 bill on the street, I know that I have to give this. It's not mine. And I know what I have to give, the $50 bill, but I don't know who it belongs to. I don't do an injustice. But there's a frustration that justice is not being done. Now I want to show you on this chart why the term social and changing legal and general justice to social, which is only one little part of the story of the confusion of that adjective, social, that begins to emerge 20s and 30s of the 20th century. Why it really does have consequences. here, here we have the chart. First thing I want to point out that the three legs of justice, those vertices, every one of them social. Commutation is social. I mean, today we hear a lot of talk among churchmen, we've got to transcend commutation and this kind of thing. But listen, marriage is rooted in commutation. It's not totally in commutation, but it's realistically grounded in an act of commutative justice in which the parts of a social entity make an agreement to a commutation. Well, it also belongs to all sorts of business uh, ventures. Uh, in the ancient world, well into the medieval world, it's the largest single uh, deposit of thinking on justice. It's commutative justice because it's the simplest one to, to understand, and it's maybe the easiest one to satisfy. Okay, so we first have a relation here of parts to parts. But they are social parts. But parts to parts, okay. Who is the giver? Both of them are. They give and receive. But now look at the the C to B. Who is the giver in distributive justice? Well, on this, it's the social whole. Actually, it's us. It's us. And the recipient is a social part on the basis of merit or maybe demerit, even, or need. Okay, We have to understand who who are the givers and the receivers. And on the other leg, legal or general justice, who are the givers? Not the state. It's the parts or the givers. It's you and me. The recipient being the social whole. The problem with P11's change. Situated as it was in a global catastrophe in which people are trying to, I mean, who did the banks belong to? Who does the state belong to? Which party does the state belong to? Uh, It starts to confuse this in the adjective. So we really do want to know when the social whole is the giver, And when the social whole is the recipient, the part-whole analysis is crucial in social theory for understanding justice. Now, we could think, it doesn't matter, just so long as the right thing gets in the right person's hands. Who cares how it's spinning around the triangle here? Sort of like a Hayekian market in which Everything is given and distributed at the end of the day in terms of the market. Just so long as it ends up in the right person's hands, the right amount in the right person's hands. But we have to remember that in the Thomistic system, like the Aristotelian system, the virtue of justice belongs in the recipient. Does the virtue of justice, the person to whom I give the $50 bill back, is the virtue of justice in that person? The just thing is to that person. It's always in the giver. It's in the action. Okay. Now, to return to this triangle, what we see is this is that uh, in commutative justice there's a bilaterality. The virtue is in each giving to the other what was agreed to with other qualifications. But in the case of the social whole giving to the part, it's us. Now you can say it's our policies as well, it's the structures we're following, but essentially the virtue of distributive justice is in us as a corporate entity. That's what makes it different than a market, okay, which is anonymous. And the virtue of giving what is due to the social whole consists in you, me, and everyone else in the society. This model can be mapped analogously onto other social entities even the church, even a family to some extent, I say, right? So in a family, it's the parents who say, among the divisible things that belong to us, such as some cash and some medicine, who gets the medicine? The child who is thrifty and has a piggy bank or the child who is sick? And the right judgment would be, The sick child gets the medicine under distributive justice. In in whom does the virtue belong? It's the parents, right? So on and so forth. So the the problem here is that uh, once we use the adjective social loosely, without these structures, who gives and who receives, Within a given society, well, confusion ensues. By the way, general justice for Aquinas, what ends up being called social justice, is not even a cardinal virtue. It's greater than a cardinal virtue, but it's not a cardinal virtue, because in general justice, what the parts owe to the whole uh, has inadequate alterity to it. Because the whole is us. It doesn't doesn't have the kind of otherness at computation and distribution. It's greater. It's also not a cardinal virtue, because there is no precise way to fulfill the entire thing. Like, I'll register for the draft. OK. For the sake of the uh, winning one for the gipper. I'll serve. I'll serve if called upon. My obligation to general justice is fulfilled, just as when I give the $50 bill to the person to whom it belonged. But Thomas is very clear. You you can't fulfill general justice exactly in that way. More indeed may be required in general justice. Okay. The first storm signals intellectually that went up about the adjective social and the way it was being used in the 1930s was a book by two Jesuits, uh, Calvez and Perrin. Some of you may have read it. It was on everyone's bookshelf who did Catholic social doctrine even 40 years ago. Uh, In English, The Church and Social Justice, The Social Teachings of the Popes from Leo XIII to Pius XII. they started sending up warning signs. This is, of course, during the pontificate of uh, Pius XII. That the adjective social was out of control. And we were not able to identify which of the modes of justice correspond to it, or who is the giver and the receiver. Uh, And this is how they, in other words, we were lacking an objective norm, socially objective norm about giving and receiving. And they wrote, without the objective norm, social justice is a mere bundle of social aspirations analogous to so many social systems, which may be well-intentioned, but which lack precision and strength. First of all, social can mean any of the three modes of justice. So they scratch their head and said, what are we going to do about this? what does, how to restrict the the ambiance of this uh, adjective social. And they decided to make this recommendation. It's not a theoretical construction made independently of the circumstances which give rise to it, but an historical response to an historical problem. That is, Pius XI just had to do it. It it was a practical matter of policy. And so we must accept a restricted meaning of social and social justice to those human relationships which grow out of the economy. Put all other ones aside. Uh, But the original meaning of social justice was the opposite. The original meaning of social justice meant a common public end Moreover, every pope since Leo had ruled out the restricted meaning of general or legal justice. It's not just an economic matter. Anyone who is a member of a social whole is going to have a duty like that. And I think uh, Calvez and Perrin were accurate on this, although their attempted solution, which is to make it a temporary policy matter, did more harm than good. Uh, And I think we can find traces of this, the effects of it in the compendium of Catholic social teaching. That is the tendency uh, not to be careful about which social realities you're abstracting from and virtually no tendency to try to verify them going back. And that is policy expressed sort of by slogans that rally the troops. I'm gonna give some examples of this. Um, more space in the compendium is given to the Kyoto Freshwater Treaties than to the modes of justice. And when they try to summarize social teaching on justice uh, they say, a large part of the church's social teaching is solicited and determined by important social questions to which the social justice to which social justice is the proper answer. So uh, well, what about commutation? What about distribution? Now, traditionally, in the mode of distribution what the whole owes to the parts. There's a limit on this owing, and the limit on the owing is this. It's called the principle of subsidiarity. The whole owes subsidium to the parts with this qualification, injustice. It may never preempt the parts. That is, it may never confuse this particular kind of social order that are the parts. Subsidiarity is a, is, is a limit on the social whole in doing distributive justice. Okay. And here we find, for instance, in Fratelli Tutti, quote, here we can see a concrete application of the principle of subsidiarity which justifies the participation and activity of communities and organization on lower levels as a means of integrating and complementing the activity of the state. So apparently, the authors of uh, Fratelli Tutti confused this with the other line, which is from the parts to the whole, rather than a limit on the whole going downwards in, in the giving of aid. Actually, if you follow that definition, maybe it's just some sort of exhortation, but if it actually is a definition, uh, this would justify devolution. That is, the social whole devolves to its parts in order to carry out tasks of the state or whatever the social whole is more efficiently. But let me give some other examples of, of how this, the adjective social just moves around without precision. And I'm gonna speak of Pope Francis, but with this qualification, he didn't begin this. And I don't even know if he wrote some of these things, but it's kind of, a, it's, it's kind of like an all-star game of trying to follow the word social around in sentences. By the way, There's no doubt that Francis is a critic of any reduction of society to merely compositional unity. He speaks against that all the time, nevertheless. I counted it up. In Fratelli Tutti, family denotes a real family eight times. It's just very clear, they're talking about a family Metaphorical families, 27 times. It's sort of a a misplaced concreteness sort of an issue here. The word social as an adjective modifies a real social entity 15 times, but no evident social body at all, 56 times. And we get phrases like society in its entirety. Uh, or is it the entirety of society mixed up back and forth? And analyses, or at least rhetoric, on what could be called local versus global. But local locates a primary social entity entirely abstractly because a family is a particular society in another social whole It is not just down the street. Down the street means local. It means regional. Regional versus global are not social forms. They're quantitative predicates having to do with place and distance. We get sectors of society and parts of humanity which those expressions without any kind of precision. I believe this is a decades long evolution of actually following Calvez's recommendation of wanting policy and using that kind of language. But there are many other aspects of Catholic social teaching that are similarly, how to put it, dizzy. And where there are many things to, to think through, one of them is the state. Um, for three generations, well, more than three generations, serious Catholic thinkers since the mid-19th century argued about whether political order has a merely instrumental good, is a merely instrumental good, or whether it has an intrinsic common good? Well, I think most people know that the answer has to be both, because we can go back to the triangle here. The social whole is related to parts in two different ways. But this this has not been resolved. Nor is the divisible versus the indivisible in matters of political action. Second, nor is it entirely resolved uh, whether political community is completely incompetent in matters of religion. Surely part of it is resolved by dignitatis, but only a a a narrow but very important part of that which has to do with uh, the use of coercion, not with regard to action, external action, but with regard to the action of searching for the truth and adhering to it as a matter of conscience. Mm. Does Caesar have jurisdiction over mathematics or metaphysics? I'm done, right? Well, I have to wrap up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. One more example of this. In Summa 12.97.3, 97.3, Odd 3, Aquinas writes, if it is a free people that can make laws for, if it is a free people that can make laws for itself, then the consensus of the whole people to observe the practice that a custom makes manifest counts for more than the authority of the ruler, who does not have the power to make law except insofar as he stands in for the people. Hence, even if particular persons cannot make law, the whole people can nonetheless make law." I think for Thomas that's polity in its best configuration, uh, because there's reciprocity. But in Secunda Secundae 10.10, he raises a very interesting problem with which Father uh, Dominic Rooney has tried to treat, I think fairly successfully, but here's my take on it. The question is whether Christians uh, must refrain from putting themselves under the dominion of an unbeliever. It's under the question of harm. What kind of harm could ensue? Both to the individuals and the common good. And he makes a very nifty distinction at the beginning, saying, Well, if it's already a political regime, pre existing, antecedent, then uh, Christ does not abolish the rule of Caesar. And Christians ought to follow the law. Uh, and then he has a couple of exceptions to it. He says, Or whether it's de novo. And de novo, if you have a real choice over the matter and you're not interrupting an already existing political order, uh, yeah, should never have. Uh, Christians should never put themselves under an unbeliever as having dominion. For you. And then you start to look at the social facts of this. And in reply to objection, objection three, he says, Servants are subject to their masters for their entire lives, and they are subject to those who have authority over them with respect to all of their dealings. Therefore, the harm is this. Uh, If your master, one to whom you, you must obey, is an unbeliever, the Christian, being weak, is almost inevitably going to follow his master's wishes in questions of religion, right? But the social fact here is vassalage, right? Servant subject to the masters for the whole of their lives. And on a system of vassalage, by the way, which Muslims had back then too, not just Christians, uh, it's sort of like Christopher going to Tony Soprano. I'm your man. Now, Christopher could disobey Tony. He probably should kill him. I mean, if, if you don't want to obey Tony, you should probably kill him. But in a system of vassalage, king is a vassal of Christ, knights are vassals of the king, retainers of the knights are vassals to the knights, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all the way down. It it is despotical, or at least quasi despotical. Right, But, and by the way, why weren't early Christians so weak? He actually says that in in the article, but he doesn't explain why early Christians are different than medieval Christians on this kind of thing. Except maybe they had more grace. But uh, this is an issue that still has to be resolved. Now, our way of resolving this has been But if it's a true polity, then there is reciprocity. And in fact, the rulers or the masters obey us. We can elect them or unelect them. We can have conversations about the entire thing. Whereas in a system of vassalage, those who are not believers can live out their life in their domus And they can function as hired help. They can be a mechanic for a a Christian client. But they cannot be a political animal. Because a political animal is not just someone who obeys, uh, but someone who participates, performs the action of a social part with reciprocity. Okay. This, this kind of problem is, is, is always cropping up, in which we have to understand what we are abstracting from when we kind of want to drive a principle or a doctrine. And we should verify it going back down. I think the current atmosphere of Catholic social teaching usually is not inclined to do that. Not metaphysically disinclined to do that, or naturally disinclined to do that, but they just don't do it because they're forming policies, which are uh, a different kind of a matter. You know, uh, I had more to say, but everyone does. So I think I should end. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.temisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.